This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. All this week, in betwixtness, the dead week, the fallow week, call it what you will, that very strange week between Christmas and New Year's, when you're not quite sure what day it is and you're still eating the quality street, but you know you should probably get off the sofa. We've been getting a little extra help from Christmas guest co-hosts, CGCs, as we are calling them. And this morning, it was Paul Griffiths, the CEO of Dubai Airports, who, despite running the world's busiest international airport, still managed to find four hours to hang out with us this morning. This and some of our highlights of our extended chat with him. We are speaking to the boss of DXB, Dubai Airport's CEO, Paul Griffiths, is our Christmas guest co-host this morning. Morning, Paul. Good morning. And in honour of the late, great Malcolm Taylor, I'm going to start not with your aviation career, but with your music career, because Malcolm was quite obsessed with this. A little inside a baseball for you. Uh, Whenever we sat down and came up with new features for the business breakfast, Malcolm pitched the same feature over and over and over for about five years. Um, And I've got one of his emails here. June 23, 2012, from Malcolm Taylor. Um, And he says, uh, I think we could do a section. I can't do the I'm not going to try and do the voice. I might. I think we can do a section about guests doing well in their corporate lives, but also keeping up their pastimes and hobbies to the highest levels. Uh, Paul Griffiths, CEO of Dubai Airports, also plays organ, uh, plays in cathedrals, could have been a professional musician. Plus, there's some other guy who makes violins. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Malcolm, my greatest fan, I have to say. (laughs) He absolutely was. And it was one of his life missions to to get you talking about it. He would love the fact um, that we have hours to do it this morning. So let's start with the organ and not the planes. How on earth does a young boy end up playing a church organ? Well, it's an interesting story. I think I was 10 and my best friend at school, Philip Reardon, came up to me one day randomly and said, do you want to come and join the church choir? And I said, no, not really interested in music. And he said, you get paid for it. So I said, well, when can I start? And I went along to the first choir practice and the singing was okay. I quite liked it. But he said, do you want to come and have a look at the organ? And I tell you, that was like the moment in The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to technicolour. For me, that was the eureka moment. There was this incredibly complicated thing with three keyboards and pedals and all these stops and you could make all these different sounds. And from that moment on, I was entranced and I badgered the director of music to teach me and he was a bit reluctant to start with, but then I had organ lessons and I remember going to school and we had a little organ at school and um, I sat down and played it and the head teacher came in and said, um, oh, that, that's interesting, didn't know that you played. How long have you been learning? And, and I remember saying, uh, Miss Hall, uh, since Tuesday, and I think this was on Friday, and it was just one of the things that I just took to like a duck to water. And for years, I wanted to be a cathedral organist. And I trained and did all my exams and everything. But my father said, you know, you won't be able to play the gas bill no matter how eloquently you play Bach. So um, go and get yourself a proper job. 
And um, I didn't like that advice at the time, as you can imagine. But actually, I think it's turned out okay. And I've managed to combine the two. And, you know, I still play quite a lot. I'm working on new repertoire for a recital I'm doing in New York in March at the moment. So um, it's something that is an obsession in my life. And I love, love doing it. You may not have made it your main career, but you have played in venues and for audiences that most professional musicians can only dream of, including a slightly unusual double bill with Chris Fade for the Pope. (laughs) That was amazing. I can genuinely say I've played a stadium full of more people than you two have. And I think that that's a great claim to be able to make. That was an absolute moment. And and it was made all the more special for Malcolm's continual trailing on Dubai Eye. You know, I wonder what he's thinking now. Do you think he's got uh, nerves? Do you think it's a problem for him? Or do you think he's going to sail through? Yeah, I think he's going to sail through, said Malcolm. It was just great. The world's first organ commentary. (laughs) Indeed, absolutely. That was just such a fantastic occasion. Being there in a stadium, you know, millions of people watching on live TV all over the world. And there I was, you know, with my fingers and the reality of the shortcomings of my musical technique, you know. Well, you're being exceptionally modest. I'm looking at the list here and it's not a complete one. Um, St Paul's Cathedral, London Royal Festival Hall, Westminster Abbey. What has been, other than the papal visit, the highlight? Well, I have to say that I did a tour in 2019. I did about seven or eight concerts back to back. And the highlight was playing in St Nidaros Cathedral in Trondheim in Norway, which has an organ which I think they've managed to shoe in uh, with the cathedral built round it. It is absolutely enormous, a joy to play. And in Norway, they take the music very seriously. The place was absolutely packed and I could only practice between 2am and 6am. I was absolutely exhausted by the end of it, but it was an absolutely fantastic experience. What's still on the the list? Where's the must play? Well, uh, there's a few that I've got. I'm playing at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York, which is one of the largest cathedrals in the United States in March. Uh, I'm playing in uh, Christchurch Priory in Dorset later in the year. Um, I've still got a date for um, Notre Dame in Paris when they've rebuilt the uh, the cathedral and got the organ back and up and running. That's uh, going to happen, I think, probably over the next couple of years. And, of course, don't forget, um, one of the best organs in a cathedral anywhere is actually in Auckland. And so I'm going to head down there, hopefully, to be in the Auckland Festival one July, possibly next year. One minute before we have to go to the news. People listening to this will be thinking, don't you have an incredibly busy airport to run? How do you manage, I mean, I'm assuming you've got the air miles, but how do you manage to do both of these? Well, it's interesting. Um, I use the opposite ends of the day, early morning and late at night to practice. I mean, my poor family can probably hum every single tune of every single piece I play because they've heard it so many times. And I just think, you know, if you can get on a plane go to a place like Auckland or Washington or something, uh, jump off the plane, go and practice, do the recital, and then as I did when I played in Washington, straight on a plane, straight to Portugal, straight to Paris for the air show. Um, I can manage to fit it all in. I think um, if you uh, um, dose yourself up with um, you know, a, a particular energy drink that keeps you going, then I think it's, uh, it works very well. Fittingly giving you wings? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, Tom Urquhart is taking a cultural tour of Geneva, no doubt taking in a few museums.
choral performances. Yeah, and a little bit of skiing as well. And a little bit of skiing as well. In his place, we have the suitably dapper Paul Griffiths, the boss of DXB International. Paul, thank you so much for getting up early and joining us. It's a great pleasure. I've never been so excited in my life. Very quickly, you talked about Tom Urker and choral performances there. And, and if you were listening 10 minutes ago, Brandy referenced Malcolm Taylor's obsession with Paul Griffiths in a good way, not only as a chief executive of an airport, but also as an accomplished church organist. And Paul has performed in front of the Pope. So has Tom Urker. Yeah, I made the joke about Tom's cultural tour of Europe. Yeah. Um, but he was indeed a chorister, wasn't he? He was a chorister of, of some standing at school and... The church choir that he sang for did go to the Vatican and performed in front of a pope. Which one, I'm not sure. It was a while ago, but it was a pope at the Vatican. So we have two papal performers. What do you know? We used to we used to click Nobel Prize winners here on the Business Breakfast, but we've interviewed a, a few of those, clearly those. Go get Chris Fade. He's asked people to make some noise for the pope before. He has indeed, yeah. Um, But Paul is with us this morning. We're going through the news. We're going through the life and times of uh, Paul. There'll be a special podcast afterwards. We're looking um, not just at the musical performance that Malcolm Taylor was was so interested in, but um, we are also looking at his obsessions with all engines. He has done trains. He has done motorbikes. Um, I know firsthand he's a little bit obsessed with Formula One. Um, And then, of course, there is the plane spotting as well. So all of that to come on the show this morning. But he is not the only guest that we have in the studio. I can see in the green room um, that we have the man who's going to be telling us whether or not we're all going to have a job in about six months, Richard Dean. Mazen Nahawi is here. He's from Karma, the media organisation based here in Dubai, but global operations, 500 people in 18 offices. And he's here to talk about Dubai's new strategy for the media industries because announced overnight is that the UAE, or rather Dubai, wants to double the size of the media industry and its contribution to GDP. This is from a high level. Sheikh Ahmed bin Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, who's second deputy ruler of Dubai. He's also chairman of the Dubai Media Council. So if he says he wants it to happen, it is going to happen. The strategy seeks to advance Dubai Media Council's objective to do the following. Foster greater creativity in the sector, broaden strategic partnerships to bolster Dubai's position as a hub for talent in the media industry, both local and also foreign direct investment. Brandy and I are... I always get worried when they say they're going to like sort of raise the bar for the media. (laughs) I think, oh dear, we've got away with it for so long. Precisely. This is a double-edged sword for people who already work in the media industry. Uh, But Mazen's going to be here to talk us through what they're going to do. But we're also going to throw in a question about artificial intelligence because one of our top stories today, Brandy, you've covered this, is the New York Times media organisation is suing OpenAI and Microsoft, a major shareholder in OpenAI, for copyright infringement. So that development is going to be under the microscope as well. Mazen's in the studio in about 15 minutes time. Yeah, fascinating story this one for a number of reasons. Number one, it's one of the few news stories to actually come out this week, so hurrah for that. Um, And number two, it's the New York Times basically going a different way from the likes of AP, the Associated Press, who um, there are some media organisations that have done a deal um, with the uh, the open AIs of the world to populate, to, to be used as, as sort of training for the large language models. Um, the New York Times has said, 
no, we would like quite a bit of money, actually. They're talking about billions of dollars um, in statutory and actual damages um, that they say, Microsoft and OpenAI, um, aim owe them for unlawful copying and use of the Times' uniquely valuable works. And we care about this particularly because paying for the media it ties into this story as well, and that's been rumbling on for longer than there has has been open AI and the idea of generative um, AI in general. How do you actually pay for, for newspapers? Do you stick in a paywall? Do you go subscription? Um, is news too commoditized for anyone to, to pay for it? I'm, I mean, I might have a pen in this fight, but I'd quite like the media to get paid. Rich, this is something I know you were looking at at one stage for a PhD. Yes, exactly. It's it, it, for, for all kinds of content creators. Now, the written word, of course, is the New York Times. Uh, the spoken word is impacted by that. So we're on radio and television. But in the other areas of my life, you know, my wife's an architect, interior designer. We have an interior design business. And you look at generative AI in terms of images with things like Dali and Mid Journey. And it's uh, very much... Uh, an issue for for graphic designers, for architects, for for visual designers of all ilks as well, and many, many other walks of life. The fact that these generative AI models do rely on source content to learn. And to what extent do they reinterpret? To what extent do they just regurgitate what's already been written or designed or spoken? Yeah, I mean, to quote the Times, and I agree with this, you know, the tools, they basically say, look, you know, we see the power and the potential of generative AI, but they say those tools are being built with, and here's the quote, um, content that's only available because we and our peers reported, edited and fact-checked, at a high cost and with considerable expertise. I think they've got a fair point. What's the AI chat in your industry, Paul? Very interesting, actually, because we are looking at AI very much behind the scenes rather than in front of the customer because I think AI has an incredible power to put the processing power of computing into a better human interface. And the idea, for example, if someone comes and asks a question at the airport, you know, I'm flying to Riyadh, can you tell me how far it is to my gate? Um, Yes, it's great if people know exactly what the answer is, but if they don't, if they've got a little earpiece and our AI bot has listened to the conversation and they can press a button and get in their ear Actually, it's gate 13, it is six minutes walk from here, and when you get there, there's a coffee shop, a restaurant, and a games area for the kids. So it's that sort of thing where AI can support people in the front line, which I think we're looking at it very seriously. But in you know, if you look at industries like computer coding, you look at various other things where there is repetitive tasks, AI has the power to access and make um, speed those particular tasks up incredibly quickly. But one thing I think with uh, technology, it's never quite had the impact we thought it would have. If you think about it, in the 60s, we were all saying that energy would be plentiful, nuclear-powered uh, electricity would heat our homes so we didn't have to insulate them. That didn't quite work out. And then, you know, faxes and emails were going to make our working week just two days and we were going to spend the rest of the week on the golf course. That hasn't quite worked out either, has it? So I I think the impact of what it um, will actually do may be different from what we're looking at now. And I think some jobs will be changed forever. Um, New opportunities will open up. But this issue of content, I think, is a very real one. You know, who gets paid for the origination? It's blurring the the edges a bit. 
What about, and I know that there have been all sorts of prototypes and plans from yourselves out there for, for security, for you know facial recognition and, and all the rest of it. How far away are we from there not being um, you know, immigration agents, as it were? I mean, already we're going through just with our Emirates ID and, and, and you know, not handing the passport over to anyone. But how long till there's not anyone there at all? I think that's just literally months away. We've already prototyped at the Dubai Air Show a completely invisible means of checking identity where people can literally walk along a corridor and the cameras are uh, applying facial recognition algorithms to them and we can actually deal with people by exception rather than forcing people through the same um, uh, security processes which have unfortunately been necessary and incredibly intrusive. I want to get rid of those and AI will help us do that. Uh, 40 seconds left with you. Where's the line with um, sort of, you know, privacy and personal security in there? Or if we're all hopping on a plane, does that just not matter? I think the thing is, now we live in a life where actually having the benefit of our data stored in multiple places is giving us, you know, huge efficacy in our lives. You know, we don't have to, you know, type in passwords when we're doing our internet banking. You know, I think we have to... um, actually face the facts that personal privacy is something that whilst protected is is something that we're not going to enjoy in the future as much as we have in the past but provided there being those details are not being um, used for things that are not good then obviously it's going to give us huge benefits in the future. We've had a chat about your musical career this morning in honour of the late great Malcolm Taylor um, who got very very excited about it We haven't even got to your aviation career yet, but should we have a look at one of your other hobbies, which is basically anything with an engine? That's basically true. Anything that moves, actually, that's got an engine or is propelled by a human engine. Yep, that's that's me. Always has been. You've got some toys, haven't you? I have a few toys, yes, here and there. And I like bringing things back that look too far gone. If I see something on an auction website that looks as though it needs a bit of TLC. I've got a great person in the UK who works for me full time and I just send him these rusty hulks and a few months later he produces these amazing looking machines that look better than when they came out of the factory. Now, when you're talking about this, you're not talking about just sort of refurbing an old watch or something, aren't you? Uh, That's correct. I have a particular interest in a certain type of transport that... um, I enjoy seeing emerge from these wrecks, and they are literally wrecks. Okay, are we we're talking about the Harrier here, are we? Uh, we could include the Harrier in the discussion as well. That's a story all of its own. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay, so talk me through what you've what you have had restored. Well, I think the thing is, look, when I was really young, one of the things I used to spend my pocket money on were little plastic kits of things, and my poor mother's for mica table was absolutely pitted with all the cement stains that were all over it and um, I built my own 172 scale model of uh, a Hawker Sidley Harrier and I progressed as I got older to bigger and bigger kits not thinking that about uh, 11 years ago I would actually buy a one-to-one scale model a Hawker Sidley Harrier which um It was actually an article that appeared in the Yorkshire Post about a company who was trying to sell a um, Hawker Sidley Harrier on eBay. 
but eBay had um, delisted it because it's against eBay rules to list a weapons delivery system, which you can perfectly understand. And the Harrier was uh, decreed to be that. So they were trying to sell it. And I this caught my imagination. So I rang the guy up and I said, is it for sale? He said, no, it's been sold. Oh, okay. Um, do you ever get these coming along? And he said, no. And then I said, um, are there any more available? He said no. And clearly I was being treated as a bit of a crank caller. So I rang him up several times over the succeeding months and said, can you find me a Harrier? Anyway, in the end, he called me back and said, there are two that the Ministry of Defence are disposing of in the UK. Would you be interested? So he said, um, all you have to do is put this amount of money in my bank account and I'll buy it for you. So trusting him, I sent him some money. And guess what? I ended up owning a Harrier. And it was not just any old Harrier. It was the one that still holds the record for the fastest transition between what is the BT Tower in London and the Empire State Building in New York. And the time of that incredible um, transition I've got right here, it was six hours, 11 minutes and 57.15 seconds in 1969, not yet broken refueled 11 times by Victor Tanker as it crossed the Atlantic and piloted uh, by uh, the one and only um, Tom Leckie Thompson, who taught my dear friend Colin McLaughlin to fly here in Dubai. So incredible story behind it. And I spent the next six or seven years having it lovingly restored, brand new paint job, and it's now on display at Brooklyn's Museum in Weybridge near Surrey. So um, it's uh, it's been an amazing journey. And uh, breaking it to my family that I'd bought to Harrier was probably the most difficult part of the whole restoration project, as you can imagine. Yeah, and I know that Tom Lickie Thompson was reunited with the plane, wasn't he? In, he in was, COVID. absolutely. In uh, Actually, on the 50th anniversary of the race, um, he was reunited at Brooklyn's with the Harrier and they made a great uh, deal of uh, media fuss about it as they rightly should have done and it, the other weird thing is that his daughter used to work for me when I was at Virgin Atlantic so there were a range of coincidences and of course I uncovered many pilots that flew for Emirates that had my particular Harrier in their flight logs so it's uncovered a whole series of amazing coincidences and brought far more pleasure than I ever thought possible. But it's not just the plane. You've got a thing for motorbikes. I have indeed, I'm afraid, yes. And for the F1, I see you most years overlooking the pit lane with an iPad, entering numbers. Uh, absolutely. Watching the progress and finding out who I think is going to win the race that particular year. It's a, a very fascinating sport and I love the technology and the challenges behind it and the the split second pit stop management fascinates me more because i'm thinking that if we could apply that same technology to dxb and turn those planes around a bit quicker we could actually end up with far more capacity for the same infrastructure so you know f1 and airports i think there's a marriage made in heaven there somewhere you've taken the odd circuit spin yourself haven't you i have yes um i've had the very greatest pleasure to drive an F1 car around the Hungary ring in Budapest which was a fantastic thing and I trained for that actually at Dubai Autodrome I spent weeks and weeks going round and round and round in a single seater car learning how to pick up the racing line and and do all those sorts of things it's been fun actually great what deal of fun circuit would you like to drive 
Uh, I'd love to, do you know, on a bike, I'd love to do the Isle of Man TT. And I'd also, I mean, I've done Yas Island. I'd love to do that in a Formula One uh, car. I love that particular circuit. And I went to Monaco uh, to watch the F1. Uh, and that's an incredible, the atmosphere of the city and the circuit. We really need an F1 street circuit in Dubai. Wouldn't it be amazing to see those cars around the Burj Khalifa? Not sure if it uh, will ever happen. I, I remain hopeful that it will one day. Have you floated that upstairs? Uh, not directly, but I'm hoping through the miracle of radio, there may be some enthusiasts out there that might be able to text in in support of that idea. Can you imagine Mohammed bin Rashid Boulevard um, echoing to the sounds of those those cars? And if we can get biofuel back into F1, let's have those V10 and V12 screaming engines back. I think it would be the most amazing spectacle. So the motorbikes, the Harrier, the, the F1, um, obviously the planes and the organ. One minute left with you. Complex machinery with engines. What does your fascination say about you? Um, I think it, it suggests that I'm someone who is fascinated by immense detail. I love bringing things together where you've got a complex set of different parts that make something absolutely fascinating. And, and I just think the way things work in harmony, just like in an orchestra, being the conductor of that orchestra and have a part in bringing something together that unites people, that is the common thread through the whole thing. Our guest co-host today is the boss of Dubai Airports, Paul Griffiths. We haven't even got to aviation yet. Uh, we are talking to him about his life and times and going through the news of the day with him. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Joined by a Christmas guest co-host, a CGC. It's a new business breakfast tradition that we have started for that difficult week uh, between Christmas and New Year's. And we're having a humongous amount of fun with it. Uh, We've had Dame Heather McGregor discussing everything from how to set up your own Edinburgh Fringe show to investment banking in Japan. Pan uh, in the 80s and 90s. We have had the PR boss, uh, Sunil John, in explaining how to build and sell a company. Uh, Tomorrow, we are going to have the former Dubai Opera boss, uh, Jasper Hope, in, hopefully shedding some light about what he's doing now, fingers crossed. Yeah, we know. um, So what do we know about Jasper Hope? We know that he is a... Uh, opera venue, concert venue operator. He was the Royal Albert Hall in London. He was the launch head of Dubai Opera. He's doing a lot of work in Saudi Arabia now. And over the past week or two, Saudi Arabia has confirmed that it is building an opera house and has unveiled designs by a Norwegian architect. And Jasper will... Tell us his thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, we're hoping we can link some dots here live on air tomorrow. But today, um, we have a man who uh, we're very pleased that he's found um, the time to come and spend it with us this morning because, um, well, his airport's a bit busy at the moment. Uh, it is the boss of Dubai Airports, Paul Griffiths. Paul, it's lovely to have you with us. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm having a huge amount of fun. And we've been chatting to you this morning about your, I can't even call it a hobby, um, your musical career, um, what you've done with restoring planes and and bikes and F1 and the rest. We haven't even made it to your aviation career yet. (laughs) So let's take a look at it. Your dad told you that 
playing the organ that music was not a career if you wanted to pay the bills. So why did you choose tourism? Well, the interesting thing is I was always interested in technology. And I think my mother found in the paper that they were advertising uh, for reservations agents to operate computer systems and basically sell holidays to people. I was uh, I'd just uh, finished college and uh, didn't really have a clear idea of what I wanted to do. And so I went along to interview and must have said something right because they put me as the only male employee in a department of about 40 on the phones ex explaining why going to Spain on holiday was a good idea. And I got involved in the allocation of the aviation capacity to the holidays and working um, how that could be best uh, made a computer-based operation because it was all manual at the time. And it was absolutely fascinating. And I realized I love the intricacies of moving aeroplanes around and scheduling them. And I remembered all the three-letter codes for airports in, in very quick time. And, and I just think it got into my blood and... Here I am, a number of decades later, still in the same industry. Because you had a computing degree. Mm -hmm. How on earth? Because you started um, you started your career about the time that I was born, actually. I was having a look at your CV earlier, sorry. That's the most depressing fact of the day, thank you. How was all of this being scheduled without computers? Well, the interesting thing is that, would you believe, um, when I first started in the tour operating business, there were huge sheets of graph paper. And if you rang up to make a reservation, they'd go and pencil your name in and then add up the number and they put a line at the bottom. And when they got to the bottom and the planes were full, that was how it worked. There were no computers involved. And it was interesting because... I came up through that generation where computing was at the other end of a telex machine and you had ticker tape and everything like that. And, and I quickly saw how this technology was going to change the world. And it was great to be involved in it and think about how business processes could be transformed through machines that could automatically keep account of, you know, what the occupancy on a plane was and, and if there was a way of cross-selling people if a plane was full onto another one and and it was great being at the industry at that sort of inflection point and of course there's been a number of inflection points since and being involved at that change where you've gone from one way of doing business to another has always fascinated me. Well you weren't just involved in the industry as part of the change you set up a company that basically developed computer systems to help the aviation industry to do that. That's exactly right I joined a a publishing company that produced uh, at the time what was the ABC Travel Guides, which was later acquired by OEG, which is still going to, uh, today. And they use computer systems to match up airline schedules and create connections. So if you wanted to go from Sydney to Belgrade, it told you the best way of getting there. And that was fascinating. And the skills that I learned there enabled me to write software to optimize the way airlines work. And I went to Hong Kong, got involved in the startup airline there, Dragonair, put all their computer technology in, which enabled them to run the operation with a skeleton staff. And then a, a delightful chap in a jumper that had one plane who wanted to start an airline got heard about me and asked me to come and see him. And we chatted about things and I wrote all the initial computer systems for Virgin Atlantic um, 
using my company and um you know like the shaver ad he he loved what i did so much he bought the company and took me onto the board of virgin and that was a a, a, an absolutely amazing period of my life learning an awful lot in a very short time you know by making some mistakes as well as doing some good stuff it was a fascinating period when we were literally changing the world of aviation what was your first impression of richard branson incredible i mean he has a charisma that you can't explain when he walks into the room suddenly you sort of stop and take notice and he was just incredibly impressive. And he has the knack of making you feel like you're the most important person in the conversation when you're talking to him, which is incredible when you consider all the achievements he's got under his belt. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful working with him. And um, we, we did so many amazing things together and grew the airline. You know, I think it had about 30 planes by the time. I moved away and, um, you know, we did the deal with Singapore Airlines and Singapore acquired a 50% stake in Virgin Atlantic. And it sort of, you know, helped the, the Virgin Group sort of progress having that sort of injection of capital. And um, if it wasn't for 9-11, I think I might still still have been there. Well, you were, you were on the board of Virgin Rail, Virgin Travel, Virgin Atlantic Airways, as you say, um, and also was the chairman of their airport coordination unit, which I'm going to assume led to your next job as chairman and managing director of Gatwick. How did Branson cope with you leaving? Is he one of those bosses that treats it like a bit of a divorce? Well, it was very interesting. He was on NECA, his island in the Caribbean, and he heard that I'd decided to sort of move on because I'd moved across to the rail business and I I wanted to go back into aviation and actually the Gatwick job came up and it was sounded interesting they wanted a bit of a transformation done to the airport sector in the UK and um, you know he he was almost in tears on the phone and so was I really it was like you know a divorce more than just a resignation and we've kept in touch very closely ever since and I still have huge respect and admiration for him. We are going to find out how that job at Gatwick uh, led Paul here to us um, here uh, 16 odd years ago to run Dubai International and what it looked like when he turned up. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. One of the big stories this week out of India is that India as a government and indeed as airlines are lobbying for more slots on the lucrative routes to Dubai. In particular, India wants four slots for Indian carriers for every one new slot for Dubai-based carriers. We've been getting the thoughts of one aviation expert in India, Vanam Gardi, is based out of New Delhi. He's with SGI Aviation. We asked him for the backstory on this story about routes between Dubai and India. Bilateral air service agreements, just by way of them being bilateral agreements, work when two parties get similar sort of seat shares. So interestingly, uh, the backstory here is unlike other bilateral agreements which are, you know, uh, negotiated between two countries with similar entitlements on each side. The India-UAE one is unique because each emirate, for instance, Dubai has its own seat entitlement uh, with India, uh, so does Russell Khaimah, so does uh, Sharjah, and so does Abu Dhabi. So where we stand uh, currently is Dubai-based airlines have exhausted their seat entitlements to India, and so have Indian airlines, to be honest, which fly into Dubai. 
Uh, however, there are still seats available on, for instance, the Abu Dhabi bilateral. So as it stands, uh, this stalemate has persisted for a while. It's been a couple of years and every now and then, because this is such a key issue, you know, for travelers between the two countries. I mean, the UAE now is India's third largest trading partner. We have a free trade agreement with the UAE. So this relationship between the two countries is one which is very key to both and which is why a report like this is widely read and circulated. Paul Griffiths of Dubai Airports is with us in the studio. Your take, Paul. My take is that India is our top destination, 8.9 million passengers uh, during the course of 2023. And I think that the nature of bilateral agreements are best when the market can decide. But certain countries obviously are a little bit um, less open when it comes to competition. And particularly between India and the UAE, the capability has not been equal on both sides. You've got Emirates and Fly Dubai with their modern progressive fleets able to operate many more flights and seats into India than Indian airlines historically have been able to. Now, of course, we're seeing huge investment in Indian aviation infrastructure and airlines with the Tata Group taking over Air India, ordering masses of new planes. And I think that they want to play catch up. So they're very keen to rebalance the bilaterals. So there is a more even split between the two. However, Dubai's always been built on the concept of open competition and open skies being in the interests of the consumer because that allows both parties on either side of the agreement to operate as many flights as the market will bear. That brings costs down, brings airfares down and promotes growth both economic and prosperity in both countries. So we're not in favour of restrictive bilaterals and we can understand why the Indians are wanting to rebalance the arrangement. But an open skies agreement between the two countries would, I think, be the best possible outcome. In terms of those nine million or so passengers coming flying between Dubai and India every year, off the top of your head, do you know, roughly speaking, what percentage are on Dubai-based airlines, Emirates and Fly Dubai, and what percentage on Indian-based airlines? Well, it is a, an imbalance at the moment. Uh, there's a combined total of 66,000 seats per week that was in the original bilateral, which was signed in January 2014. However, of course, there have been a number of Indian airlines that have come and gone during that period. And um, we play host to several different Indian airlines here in Dubai. But I think it's a question of the competition and the product. I think that um, Indian airlines probably find it quite hard to compete with the quality of service that's provided by the Dubai-based passengers. And that's why the Dubai-based carriers rather. So that's why there is a, an imbalance of competitiveness between the two. And what do you make of this wider argument that the era of the hub airport, particularly in the Gulf, may well be not drawing to a close, but you know, reaching its peak at the moment, whether it's Dubai, of course, the main one, but also Abu Dhabi and Doha, and to an extent Istanbul as well, with the fact that Tata took delivery of its first A350 four days ago. That can fly from Mumbai or Delhi to London, perhaps even to New York. Australia, Qantas flying from Sydney to London and so on, just bypassing these, these hub airports. What do you make of that argument? Well, we're on the radio, so I can't speak my mind too freely. But the thing is, the hub airport uh, uh, is the most efficient way of creating the range of cities that are necessary to give people the best possible connectivity and customer service. I mean, 
you know, we are a relatively small city, but we have the highest number of destinations per capita available from DXB, 250 different cities in the world with 95 different airlines uh, to 105 countries. That range of connectivity wouldn't exist if we didn't operate the hub and spoke model. And aircraft technology is changing. Smaller aeroplanes are able to fly much longer distances now. And there will be a number of secondary airports that will be joined together with cities around the world that haven't been economic to serve up to now. But that will only strengthen the hub-and-spoke model. So uh, a very round rebuttal of any idea that the (laughs) hub-and-spoke model is dead is one that you will always consistently hear from me. Uh, One minute. Paul, before we uh, have to start looking at the news again, there's a lot of competition, not just out of India, but from next door. Saudi Arabia building a lot of airports um, and and building a massive airliners as well, Riyadh Air. Is there room for both us and them on that mega hub, mega airline stage? I think you have to look at the way humanity decides to visit a region. And I think the opportunity for the development and travel and tourism across the whole region will create opportunities for every single country when you know the japanese or the americans have gone to europe for example they haven't just gone to paris or london they've gone to paris london frankfurt munich madrid rome milan and therefore if we've got more destinations in the region and we've got the visa across the region that's going to make travel easier between countries then I think the sky's the limit as far as travel and tourism is concerned. Every guest that we've had so far, he has had a long and varied career. He has a number of pedals to his organ, shall we say. But let's have a chat about how you did end up here with us. In 2007, you were running Gatwick. Did we call you? Uh, You did certainly call me, yes. It was uh, amazing, actually, because... um, I was working at that time for Gatwick, which was owned by BAA PLC, and, and I think about 18 months earlier, they'd been taken over by the uh, Spanish industrial giant Ferrovial, who I note actually is in the news, having just sold uh, a majority of its shareholding in Heathrow. And um, it was interesting because that was a fairly turbulent time because the culture clash between the UK and Spain was quite significant in terms of airport management because BAA had been part of government and um, Ferroviel wanted to take it very firmly into the private sector and that was a very good agenda. However, they had something called the good leavers policy, which was if you wanted to go and get another job, they'd pay you handsomely to do so. And I'd completely ignored that idea because I didn't really want to leave Gatwick. I had a great team and we were doing things which were really quite good. Anyway, um, that had been announced on the Friday. And on the Saturday morning, I got a call saying, would you be interested in going to be the first CEO of Dubai airports? because the government are deciding to corporatise the enterprise. And it sounded intriguing, so I got on the plane, came out, and it was interesting because during the interview process, um, I I remember calling my wife saying, we've been invited back for tea with the chairman of Emirates at the time, or the deputy chairman, uh, Maurice Flanagan. And um, I said to her, you do realise that this means that they are probably quite serious about getting me here. And she said, no, that can't be right. You know, I only came here for the shopping. 
So we had a chat about it and they offered me the job. And on the 27th of September, 2007, we took our three suitcases, got on our one-way ticket to uh, Dubai and came and to have an adventure. And what a, an amazing adventure that's been for the last 16 years. When I arrived, uh, Gatwick and Dubai were about the same size, about number seven or eight in the world, 32 million passengers a year. But within a few years, of course, um, Dubai International had tripled in size. And I think we got to something like 86.4 million passengers. And um, Gatwick, I think, still hovering around 40. So uh, was it the right decision? I don't have a slightest doubt that it most definitely was the right decision. It's been amazing. I was wondering, actually, over the Christmas weekend about what Dubai International looked like when you arrived. I was at a party and someone had a copy of um, Jim Crane's book, Dubai, which has a section in it um, about Sheikh Mohammed walking around the airport at midnight, um, checking on service levels. And it was a very different operation at that stage. What was your mandate? What did they actually ask you to do? Well, it was very interesting because I remember walking into Sheikh Ahmed, my chairman's um, office, and saying, right, I've arrived. What do you want me to do? And he said, quite simple, just one objective. Do not constrain the growth of aviation in Dubai. And I thought, well, I'm either going to succeed or fail. That's not a, it's not a nebulous um, agenda. And it was interesting because literally there was only Terminal 1 and Terminal 2. Terminal 3 was under construction. Um, and we were due to open Terminal 3 in the spring of 2008, but we delayed it till the October to get the construction and service levels absolutely right. I'm glad we did that. And in fact, people said during the summer of 2008 that they weren't going to survive without T3 being open. But we put a lot of measures in to support the customer service and capacity and had quite a good um, time. And then, of course, when we were able to take the extra time and open Terminal 3, um, that was a very uh, seamless and flawless experience, which was very good. And um, we gradually expanded, adding more and more capacity. We opened... A couple of years later, we opened Concourse A. And then, of course, we worked on Concourse D, which was for the foreign airline. So we've built during the course of, you know, just a few years, more capacity than any other airport in the world has built, I think, over 50 years. And it's been uh, amazingly well received. We've been able to improve capacity, improve our technology, but crucially improve the customer service, which I think is the thing I've been most proud of. Well, you arrived and then about five and a half minutes later, we had a financial crisis. Absolutely. And um, I think the thing is, it was quite useful being in the UK aviation business that had been through several difficult uh, political cycles. So we knew exactly what to do when things got bad. I mean, obviously, after 9-11, the aviation industry was thrown into crisis and we had to react to keep the airline going during that so I'd seen it from the customer end having worked for airlines more than I'd worked for airports at that point and um, therefore we just knew what to do we had to hunker down we had to make some sensible uh, economies in our business restructure things a bit like we did during the global pandemic we emerged a stronger organization because of the measures we'd taken when the crisis forced them upon us I was going to say you've had two major 
crises here in Dubai. Both the... And loads of minor ones as well. <laughs> <laughs> Probably some we don't even know about. Absolutely. Now that the dust has settled over after, after COVID, um, what do you think of the decisions that, that you made with the airport in that time? Well, it was very interesting because, of course, we had to make something like 800 staff redundant, which was very painful indeed. But actually emerging as a leaner, fitter organisation with tighter lines of communication, giving some of our younger employees the opportunity to step up has been amazing. And I have to say that as a result of that, we are leaner, fitter and better as an organisation, having gone through that crisis and emerged out the other side. And the most important thing, of course, is that we knew that rebound would come extremely quickly. We didn't know when, but we knew it would be very quick. And we just didn't do what a lot of other airports did, and that was lay off critical staff and actually turn off the pipeline of supply, which they would absolutely need to mobilise immediately things recovered. So restructuring the business, getting new strategic alliances with our suppliers was so important, and it enabled us to respond incredibly quickly when the surge in recovery came. We're now back at 100%. The aviation industry generally is hovering between 70 and 80% recovered, but we've been back at full strength since the first half of 2023 as a result of our readiness. And uh, I think that's something which in hindsight um, was a good decision. At the time, of course, we had no rule books, no uh, previous experience. We just had to do what we felt was instinctively correct at the time. And largely, I think it's worked out for the better. Paul's been very kindly saying that he's been incredibly excited about spending time with us. I'm sure it pales into insignificance compared to running Dubai airports itself, though, in your busy season. Well, I don't know. The the adrenaline is similar, actually. You know, the fact that all these moving parts have to come together at exactly the right moment is a bit like an airport, you know. Actually, what we need to do, Brandy, is you need to come and run Dubai International for a day and then you'll see the similarity. I'm more than happy to. We'll double the duty-free space and give everyone free coffee as they hop off the planes. (laughs) Uh, I'll get back to you on that. (laughs) Um, But we have had a lovely chat with Paul this morning. The one thing we haven't asked you, what's next on your bucket list? I'm sure Sheikh Ahmed has plans to keep you here at Infinitum, but is there still another job you want to do? What's the big plans for Paul? Well, the great thing is, you see, the job changes around me, and, and that means that there's never a shortage of challenges. I mean, you probably saw at the Dubai Air Show, uh, Emirates and uh, Fly Dubai alone ordered 120 aircraft. They've got to be parked somewhere. We're already pretty close to full. I was working very closely yesterday with our head of uh, engineering projects who looks after the infrastructure to work out where these aeroplanes are going to go. So we are going to accommodate them. We are going to keep improving our capacity and customer service. So when you've got such a fast moving environment, it's very interesting to be able to keep on top of that. And then, of course, you know, we're looking forward to um, creating not just one world's largest airport, but the second one at uh, Al Maktoum International down down the road in Jebel Ali. That's going to be the world's most exciting aviation project. So hopefully I'll be sticking around to have some input into that as well. Well, I don't think we've said anything too inflammatory this morning that might get in the way of that. Let's hope not. 20 seconds left and all I can do is thank Paul for spending so much time with us this morning. It has honestly been a pleasure. Thank you. It was certainly worth the early start.
And tomorrow's victim, Richard Dean? We've got Jasper Hope, the man who opened Dubai Opera House. Riyadh has a new opera house. Are those things connected? Find out tomorrow morning from 6am on The Business Breakfast. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.